God, yeah, thank you. Hey, friends, you can grab a seat. Um, like Chad said, my name's John Murphy, and uh, I serve as one of the pastors here. And so it's a privilege to open God's Word with you. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, and let's open to Acts 13. Um, we'll end up in Acts, or Acts 11, sorry. We'll end up in Acts 13, but open up to Acts chapter, uh, chapter 11. So I, I do, I want to take the opportunity to share with you guys something that the Lord's calling our family into, and by extension, he's calling our church into, uh, because the reality is like what it means to be ascending church and to plant churches and to love and to serve the poor, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a team effort. Everybody plays in the mission and the purposes of God, and so this is something that we're all invited into. And the way that we're going to do this is we're going to look at a really special church in the book of Acts. Uh, one of my favorite churches, I love what God does through this church, and this church in Antioch becomes the primary platform through which the gospel reaches the known world during this time. Their open-handed faithfulness to say, Jesus, you're worth everything, we'll do whatever you say, we'll go wherever you say, through that open-handed faithfulness, the gospel reaches the known world. Um, if you are in here this evening and you aren't a follower of Jesus, or, or maybe you would say, I, I grew up in the church and I've been away for a long time and, and I'm just not sure what I believe, um, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, you are welcome. You're home in this place. Um, in particular, I'm really glad that you're here this evening if you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity, you're, you're wrestling with the claims of Jesus. Because I think what you're going to get this evening is a peek behind the curtains, as it were. You're going to be able to see what makes us tick and kind of what we're all about as a church. Um, all of my cards on the table from the jump, I think that Jesus has placed an Antiochian-like grace on Frontline Church, on this communion of churches that we're a part of. You are a part of something really, really special. There's a unique grace on this church, and what I want to help us do is understand what it looks like to live in that grace, what it looks like for all of us to steward the unique grace that I think Jesus has placed on and entrusted to us as members of this church. So we're going to pray together. We'll ask for God's help. You pray for me. I'll pray for you. And then we'll look at the characteristics of ascending church. Father, we thank you for your grace we thank you that by your grace, you have invited us into this place, that through your son's sacrifice, you have made it possible for us to even gather and to worship you and to sing praises to you and to intercede on behalf of others and to hear your word and to see your word through the elements. All, all of this, Jesus, you've made possible and we worship you because of that. Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that you would do in these next few moments what you love to do, that, that you would um, open our hearts, our ears, our eyes. Um, ultimately, and most importantly, we pray that you would satisfy us with Jesus. It's in your name, Jesus. It's for you that we pray and gather this evening. Amen. All right. Five characteristics of ascending church from Acts 11 and Acts 13. First, ascending church crosses barriers for Jesus. Ascending church crosses barriers for Jesus. Look at this in verse 19 of Acts 11. Now those who were scattered 
because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. But there were some of them, uh, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists were um, Greek-speaking non-Jewish people. They spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So, so here's what's happening to catch you up to just like where this part of the story is in the book of Acts. Jesus has come for us. He's lived and died in our place. He's risen from the dead, just like he promised. And just as he's about to go back to the right hand of God the Father, in Acts 1.8, he tells his followers, you're going to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm going to give you power. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts 7, there's this guy called Stephen. And Stephen gets up and he begins to share the gospel. The religious leaders during this time, they don't like this message because uh, he's telling them, hey, you killed the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. You killed him. God raised him. It was all a part of God's plan. And there's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. They put Stephen to death. And as a result of that, persecution breaks out against the followers of Jesus. They're scattered from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And they end up finding themselves at Antioch. As they get to Antioch, they begin to share the gospel as was normal during this time. Jewish people, as they were scattered, the mission strategy was they would go to where the Jewish people hung out. They would go to the synagogues or where Jewish people gathered. And in Antioch, they do that and they tell them, hey, hey, the Messiah has come. The Messiah that we've been waiting for, the rescuer, God himself, he's come, it's Jesus. What ends up happening is there's some of these folks who are like, yeah, and Jesus told us that the gospel was for everyone. And so they begin to share the gospel with non-Jewish people, which was a massive barrier. Because Jewish people and non-Jewish people didn't get along. But some of these folks say, no, the gospel's for everyone. That's what Jesus told us. And so we're going to cross this racial, this ethnic barrier that exists between us and non-Jewish people because Jesus is worth it. Now, this may seem to you and I, because I, I would argue, like, there's probably not no Jewish folk in here this evening. And it would seem to you and I like this small deal. But I want to help you see why it's such a big deal to cross barriers for Jesus. If they don't cross this barrier, the gospel stays with the Jewish people. They end up never sending people to plant other churches, and you and I don't get the gospel. But because there were normal, everyday followers of Jesus at the church at Antioch who said, no, we're crossing this barrier, the gospel gets to you and I. Sending churches cross barriers for the sake of Jesus. They look at their communities. They look at the areas around them and say, where are there barriers that the gospel needs to go across? Where are those people who maybe I'm uncomfortable with and I don't understand what it takes to reach them? We look around and we say, no, Jesus is worth it. I'm crossing that barrier because Jesus crossed a barrier to come and rescue me. Sending churches cross barriers for the sake of the gospel. Second, Ascending church is both faithful and fruitful. They're faithful to Jesus and fruitful for Jesus. Look at verse 21, how this continues. 
says, the hand of the Lord was with him, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted, or he encouraged, he charged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Here's what happens as they share the gospel. Um, massive, like, revival breaks out. People are turning to Christ left and right. They're faithful to Jesus. And when Barnabas shows up, like, why Barnabas even came in the first place is word about what was happening in Antioch reaches the church at Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. There's this church up there, and there's Jewish folk and non-Jewish folk, and they're planting a church together. What in the world's going on? So they send Barnabas up to see what's happening in Antioch. And Barnabas gets there, and he's glad because the gospel's being preached, and walls are being torn down. People are gathering together, and he encourages them to remain faithful to Jesus with steadfast purpose. He doesn't show up and say, hey, the church at Antioch, we're going to make this impressive and then we're going to show other people how to do it. It's not necessarily even about the church at Antioch. It's about Jesus. That's how it starts. But it's not just faithfulness to Jesus. It's fruitfulness for Jesus. What we often do is say, like, are we going to be a faithful church that cares a lot about the word of God and cares about discipleship? Or are we going to be a fruitful church that does everything that we can to reach the loss. And Jesus says, yes. Yes, be both. Be faithful to me, but be fruitful for me. Now look at this in verse 26. Verse 26, the end of verse 26 says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Here's what's really interesting about this. Um, This wasn't a nickname that they gave themselves. This wasn't like, we gotta have a cool nickname the Roman, the, the, the Roman soldiers, they got cool nicknames for themselves. We need a cool nickname. What are we going to call ourselves? This was actually a derogatory term that the city gave to the church at Antioch. Here's what's fascinating about that. They were so fruitful for Jesus that the city, who was not about the gospel, had to do, they had to recognize it. They were so fruitful for Jesus that the city had to say, what do we call those folks? They're not Jewish folks. They're not the Jews. They don't, they don't do like what the Jews do. What do we call them? They keep talking about this guy called Christ that they think rose from the dead. We'll call them Christians. They were so fruitful for Jesus that the city took notice. Ascending church is both faithful to Jesus and fruitful for Jesus. I love how we experience this as a church. I keep hearing stories about community groups who say, we're not just going to gather for our own sake. We're not just going to gather and be comfortable because we all know one another. We're going to gather for the sake of the lost also. So we're going to gather on front porches and in backyards and outside restaurants, and we're going to invite people who are far from Jesus to come experience this countercultural kind of odd community that we get to be a part of. We're saying, yes, we're going to be faithful to Jesus, We want to be fruitful for Jesus as well. You see this as we love and serve the poor. One of the things that's coming up at our Christmas gatherings is we take this this global compassion offering. And this becomes every year our war chest through which we're going to seek to alleviate poverty and suffering in Oklahoma City and Yukon and, and across the world. 
Like we want to love and we want to serve the poor. We want to be fruitful for Jesus. Sending church is faithful to Jesus and fruitful for Jesus. Third, ascending church is marked by the humility of Jesus. Let me show you something really fascinating that happens here. It's marked by the humility of Jesus. Look at verse 25. Barnabas ends up in Antioch. And then what happens? Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. There's something beautiful happening here that's really easy to miss. Barnabas is marked by a very unique humility. Here's the picture. Barnabas gets to Antioch. Church of Jerusalem sends him up there. Now Barnabas, he's not an apostle. He's a leader in the church at Jerusalem, but he's not one of the 12. He gets to Antioch. Things are blowing and going. People are running and gunning for the sake of the gospel. Folks are getting saved. The lost are being brought into this family. Orphans are being brought into the family. It's an incredible thing. He could have showed up in that moment and been like, now's my chance. I wasn't that big of a deal in Jerusalem, but I can be a big deal in Antioch. Barnabas could have showed up and been like, hey, all y'all need now is a pastor, and he's here. Let's do this. And then all of a sudden, people would have been, Barnabas, what'd you do in Antioch? Would you come and speak at our conference? Would you write a book? Would you start tweeting? We really want to see what you've done, and we want to replicate that. Barnabas shows up, and with great humility, he says, what's happening here? It's a beautiful thing, and we're better together than we are apart. I'm going to get Saul. And so he goes, and he, he goes to Tarsus, and he gets Saul. As Acts continues, Saul actually grows more and more in his recognition and his prominence, and Barnabas grows less and less. It reminds me of a lot of, of John the Baptist, who in John 3 says, hey, Christ must increase, and I must decrease. Jesus is the big deal, not me. I'm laying it down with humility. That's what he does. And as a result of his humility... The gospel spreads across Antioch. They end up sending Paul and Barnabas. They end up planting churches all over the known world during this time. Humility is what marks the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's, it's been so encouraging to me to watch the humility that marks this church. Where we say we're better together than we are apart. We're, we're a part of this beautiful communion of churches in Edmond and Yukon and Oklahoma City and in South Oklahoma City and out in Shawnee. And we're saying, man, we're, we're better together than we are apart. What happens in this passage is, is actually what it's felt like for me and my family to be here. I remember it, it was about 18 months ago when Josh called me. Uh, Josh Curry, uh, uh, the founding pastor of Frontline, and, and he said, um, hey, I want you to consider coming and running with us. And um, that felt to me like, oh my goodness, I'm being called to the church at Antioch. Because I've thought for a long time, all my cards on the table, that this church has had an Antioch and like grace on it. And it felt like that. And for the past year, we've been able to run together and we've seen the Lord do incredible things in the midst of a global pandemic. And to be able to, with you guys over the past six months, say, Jesus is worth it. And so we're planting a church during a pandemic in Yukon. We're planting this outpost of the gospel. It's been incredible. And I've seen our leaders be marked by the humility of Jesus. Because the sending church is marked by the humility of Jesus. Fourth. Ascending church is radically generous because of Jesus. 
They're radically generous because of Jesus. Look, look what happens in Antioch. I, I love this church. Look what happens in verse 27. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold, he prophesied by the Spirit, that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, the church at Antioch, determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is remarkable generosity. There's this prophetic word that happens that, hey, there's going to be this famine. And then the church at Antioch is like, we're taking part in the relief. Now, here's why this is so remarkable. Antioch could have very easily said, we got our own problems. We're just getting started here. We got our own problems. The church in Judea, they got churches down there. Can't they take care of themselves? No, because Jesus had been radically generous with them. They say, we're going to be generous as well. We're going to take part in relief of of this, this famine that's happening in Judea. They respond to the greatness of Jesus by being generous. They don't hoard their resources. They realize that everything is Jesus's. And it's been entrusted to us that we might steward it for his glory and to reach the nations. Now, I, I, I love, like, I just want to encourage us in this. This church is one of the most radically generous churches I've ever been a part of. And I've been a part of a handful of churches and on a handful of different leadership teams. Here's what, well, um, in other eldership teams that I've been a part of, what would, what would often be the norm is you'd have meetings and be like, okay, how do we, how do we pinch pennies? Where, where do we need to cut? What missionary can we cut? The budget is not looking too good. What do we need to do? And like I've been in elder meetings here where it's, it's like borderline awkward how much we're like, where are we going to give? They ask for that much? Let's do more than that. Let's give more. There's this radical generosity, and it's not because we want everyone to think frontline's great. It's we want everyone to think Jesus is great, and Jesus is worth it, and Jesus has blessed this church immensely, and you guys have been so faithful with your giving that we're able to open up our hands and say, who can we help? Who can we serve? What churches can we plant? We want to be marked by the generosity of Jesus. Friends, this is something special that you and I are a part of. I really do think that Jesus has given us a unique blessing and a unique calling. But with that unique blessing comes a charge to us to guard it, to cherish it, because I think it's fragile. I think it's easily lost. Here's why I would say that. If you study the history of the people of God, you look throughout the Old Testament, you look at the church, throughout church history, the people of God don't experience the blessing of God for very long before they step out from under that blessing and try to take credit for everything themselves. They try to say, we're doing something special. This is about us. We're really remarkable. They take for granted the blessing of God. And then I think you see happen throughout church history. Like Jesus says in Revelation Revelation to the church at Ephesus, hey, return to your first love or I'm gonna remove your lampstand. And then in church history, like we don't know exactly what happens to the church at Ephesus, but it would appear 
that they don't heed that warning from Jesus. We don't really hear from them anymore. And the charge that I would have to all of us is let's keep our hands open. Let's keep saying, Jesus, you're the big deal around here, not us. We want to be faithful. We want to steward your grace well, all of us. Because the second we start to do this, the second we start to try to hold on to it, we start to try to manage it, we start to try to reproduce it in our own flesh, in our own strength, in our own power, it's a fragile thing. Let's guard it. Let's cherish it. Let's live with open-handed faithfulness. Okay, fifth and finally, ascending church is obedient to the spirit of Jesus to send. Antioch is experiencing something truly remarkable. Then in Acts 13, you, you heard this passage read. Acts 13, verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, I wish we had time to dive into this crazy leadership community, right? If you study the names that are listed there, everything like in, in our flesh, everything that just looks at, you know, it, leadership theory, John Maxwell would look at this team and be like, y'all are not going to be able to lead together. You got too much, you got not enough in common, too much different. There's racial uh, diversity, there's ethnic diversity, there's socioeconomic diversity here. It's just kind of in every way, like, it's not going to work for y'all to run together. And, like, I, I w we don't have time. You can study that later. It's remarkable what's happening here. By the grace of Jesus, might our church be marked by these kind of teams. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 2. While this team, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. There's this unique moment that happens here. Church at Antioch, they're worshiping together, maybe having like a, a charismatic Eucharist service like we just had on Wednesday. They're together, they're getting after it, they're singing, they're praying they're experiencing the gifts. They're celebrating communion. How great is Jesus? Look what he's doing in Antioch. In the midst of that gathering, the Holy Spirit says in some way, hey, I want you to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I'm going to call them to. I imagine for the church at Antioch, this felt really painful. I imagine. I would have been thinking the same thing. In, in reality, I feel this. I feel a bit of like what we've got going here in this place in Oklahoma City and in Yukon and this leadership team. Ah, are you sure? Church at Antioch, again, because they live with open-handed faithfulness, say, no, Jesus is worth it and we're going to send. What the church at Antioch does is they say a gospel goodbye, which is painful. It's not easy. They say a gospel goodbye because Jesus is worth it. And they want to be obedient to the spirit of Jesus. And so they say goodbye. And it's interesting to me. Like we know the story. We can flip forward in Acts and be like, look at all the fruit that happens because the church at Antioch said, Jesus is worth it. We're going to send our leaders just like the spirit says. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't show up and say, hey, Antioch, 
hey, Frontline Church, if you'll just be generous with your leaders, here's all the fruit that's going to happen. He doesn't do that. He just says, I want you to set them apart for the work that I'm going to call them to. And they do it. Uh, in, in our lives, like in my family's life and in our time here, we had no plan to leave. To be honest, we had no desire to leave. In some ways, like I, I wish I could play back for you some of the meetings and conversations I've had over the past year where we've been able to sit together and just be like, it is crazy that we get to do ministry together, that we get to run together. I remember talking with Chad about what it was going to look like to plant Yukon and how much fun it was going to be to be able to do that together. But we believe the elders do that we're in the midst of another Acts 13 moment. It's not the first one. By the grace of God, it won't be the last one. Where the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart the Murphys for the work that I'm going to call them to. So, um, in less than two weeks, we're going to move to North Carolina to begin plans to plant a church um, in the Fort Bragg area in North Carolina. It's a unique place and a unique people. And uh, my experience, as we've leaned into both the joyful reality of what that is, and faith over what Jesus is going to do and what he's calling us to, and the deep and profound sadness um, over what it's going to mean to say goodbye to you guys, I have experienced from your leaders open-handed faithfulness and generosity at every step of the way. It hasn't at all been like, well, okay, good. That's not the church at Antioch. They weren't with Paul and Barnabas. Like, well, the Spirit's sending you. Good luck, guys. Go on. It's been like, no, we're together. He's sending you and he's calling us to send. We're still going to be together. Now, before I share a, a bit more about that, um, I, I want to answer what feels like an obvious question. Why would we go? <laughs> right? Like, if you have that question... Certainly our family has had that question. Why would we leave? First and simply, because we want to be obedient to King Jesus. And I, I don't say that in an oversimplistic way. I don't say that in a way that just detaches from the reality of what Jesus is calling our church to. But the reality of Jesus being King of Kings and Lord of Lords is when he gives a directive, you follow. You don't negotiate with a king. When a king shows up in your life and says, here's what I want you to do, you don't then say, well, Jesus, that's a bit much. The cost is too great. If, if what you're saying, that represents 100%, let's walk this back to like 40 or 45%. I think that's realistic. I think I can wrap my head, my heart, my hands around that. You just say, you're king, I'm following Um, I think another reason is we believe that the Lord is uniquely suited and called our family for this place. Uh, it, I know some of you know my story, but uh, I served in the military. I was, I was stationed at Fort Bragg when I was in the Army. Um, I grew up and just knew, like, the entire time growing up, I'm going to be in the army. It was just, this is what I'm going to do. Our family's a military family, and this is what we're going to do. I thought I was going to do it for my whole life. I ended up in an airborne unit there in the infantry, loving my job, difficult job, but felt privileged and honored that I got to do it. Deployed to Afghanistan 2005. 
uh, at the beginning of 2006, was in, uh, in North Carolina on just a routine training jump. And um, I broke my back on that jump. And it was the end of my military career. And um, I went through a long period of not knowing who I was, what I was, why I was, like, why would the Lord do this? And um, we got plugged into a healthy local church. And uh, in that church, I, I was broken, busted up, didn't know what in the world I was going to do, was struggling immensely with post-traumatic stress at that time, though I wouldn't actually admit it until a decade or, two, a decade or so later. Um, Jesus met us in and through that church, and I remember thinking when we were there, I wish there had been a church like this um, when we were at Fort Bragg. And uh, long story short, the Lord has just used our story and is calling us back to a place and to a people that we love dearly and want to see reached with the gospel. The the best way that I can describe how we feel about this, um, Paul in Romans 9, he's talking about these people that he loves dearly. His Jewish brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in the flesh. He says this in Romans 9 verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. So so here's what Paul says. Paul says, if it were possible, if Jesus were to show up and say, Paul, I will save every Jewish person, every person, but it means that you're cut off from the grace of God. Paul says, I would take that. Now, Paul knows that that's not a reality. He, he's, he's like the OG of salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Paul knows that there's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. But he feels such a burden for these people that he says, if it were possible for me to be cut off from Christ and for them to be brought into the family of God, I would take that every day. That is the closest that I can describe how Kristen and I feel about this community. Fort Bragg's the largest military installation in the world. Uh, There's there's almost 70,000 soldiers there and their families. Uh, There's over 100,000 retirees in the area um, and their families. And um, there have been, since the towers fell in 2001, there have been constant deployments. Like every day since then, there's been some unit from Fort Bragg that's been deployed. Um, I have a really good friend who uh, since 2001 has been deployed a total of 13 years. Really good friend, has a great wife, great family. That pace of deployments is, um, it's brutal on families. I think about it. If you take a like Christ-centered, God-glorifying, we love each other, we love Christ. If you take a marriage like that and you take the husband or the wife and say, hey, you're going to be gone for a year, then you're going to be back for a year, you're going to be back for six months, you're going to be gone for 12 or 18 months. It's brutal. The divorce rate is out of control among the military and among their families. Divorce is through the roof. Post-traumatic stress is... Um, I think we're learning more and more about it, but we have such a long way to go. 
There's this statistic out there. Maybe you've seen this hashtag 22 a day. What that represents are um, 22 veterans who take their life every single day. We've taken that, we've made it this hashtag, and in some ways I'm grateful for that because it's raised awareness, but where it gets in my soul is um, that there are 22, and that number is actually low, it's higher than that, 22 image bearers of God who every single day feel so little hope, who feel such darkness, that they think that's the only way out. That my family, that those around me, they'll be better if I'm out of the picture. Uh, In the small platoon that I went to war with, um, we have lost more guys in the 15 years since then to suicide than than we lost at war. And I can't, like, man, <clears throat> I'm to the point where every time I get a phone call and um, I see certain area codes, I, it's just in me, this, like, another, another one. And I just feel this, like, we've got to reach them. We've got to reach them. We've got to do everything that we can. Jesus is worth it. I'm going to lay down whatever he calls, whatever the cost, because Jesus is worth it, and I want to see men, women, and children from this place come to know the saving work of Jesus, come to know the good Father that they have because of Jesus. Now, that's my Romans 9 burden. That's our Romans 9 burden. I think what you've got to do is say, what, who, who is my Romans 9 burden for? And and maybe you don't have them. Maybe you're like, man, that idea of saying, I am content with being cut off from Christ if it means my family members or those who I work with or people on uh, on my street in the neighborhood that they get brought into the family of God. Maybe you don't have that. that. That's okay. There's no shame here. Can I encourage you to ask for it? It's a dangerous prayer because I think he'll answer it. Who do you feel that kind of burden for? Friends, you and I have one life to lay down. One life. Let's lay it down for Jesus. Like for some of you, that's going to mean going. Some of you, you're going to have that moment where the Spirit says, hey, set them apart for the work that I'm going to call them to. For most of you, it's going to mean staying right here, sinking roots right here, seeing your street around you, your workplace, this church, the lost in Yukon, seeing them through that lens of Romans 9 that says, I'm going to do everything that I can to see them reached with the gospel. Hey, Frontline Yukon, you have been a gift of grace to our family. Um, Running with you guys over the past six months has been incredible. Uh, To see the humility with which Chad has been marked, where it would have been so easy for Chad to say, no, I'm the lead pastor here, and I don't need any help, but to see him say, no, 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 Jesus is worth it, man, he's doing something remarkable in Yukon, and he calls me, and like, so for Chad to be, John, would you come and run with us out in Yukon? Oh, man. Um, there's such a big part of us that's like, I don't want to go. I want to keep running with you guys. I, I can't even, it's so hard to think about like this being the last Sunday, hopefully not forever, but for a long time that we're going to gather with UConn. I want to say thank you. Um, I have experienced the grace of Jesus through your love of our family, 
through being able to spend the past six months with your leadership team, to do a deep dive with the leadership team here. It's been such a grace. We live in the tension of sadness and joy. And I think that's right, this side of glory. Because Jesus is worth it. And whatever the cost, may we follow him together. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. And I say with my friends, with this family, that you're worth it. Whatever the cost is, Jesus, may we live with open hearts and open hands. Thank you for your grace. I pray that you would save many in Yukon through this church living with open-handed faithfulness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.